0: Molly Bloom rose to fame almost 10 years ago when she was arrested for running a series of secret high stakes poker games with not so secret names like Tobey Maguire, Leonardo DiCaprio and Ben Affleck. Why would a young woman from Loveland, Colorado, dare to take such risks? Because Molly Bloom had been an Olympic hopeful mogul skier where taking outrageous chances in 25 seconds is how you get to the podium. Welcome, Molly Bloom. Thank you so much. I'm so excited you're here. I uh, I'm mostly a football, basketball, baseball guy, but I did I did cover um, a fair amount of skiing uh, uh, with Frank Gifford and Bob Biaggi for ABC, and we did, uh, and then for CBS we did the Olympics in Albertville, which you know where the first mogul uh, champion was crowned, and it was um, Edgar Cross Is that yeah. how you pronounce it? Of Mm -hmm. France, and he said he thought moguls were invented by crazy people. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with him. Yeah, like, um, I mean, for people who don't know, you describe mogul skiing,
1: sure. So, you stand on top of a very steep mountain, and you basically hurl yourself at uh very hard objects, which are moguls, which are made by mounds of snow. And you ski over those uh, as fast as you possibly can. And there are two jumps on the course and you jump as high as you can and do as many tricks as you can land, continue to try to stay composed, do it again. And then um, if you live and cross the finish line, then hopefully you got a good score.
0: Do you think uh, it's, do you need to be mentally or physically tougher to ski moguls?
1: That's a great question. I, um, I think at the elite levels, um, almost all sports is such a mental game. You have
0: to have an incredibly strong torso, don't you? Or knees like, um, describe what, what an athlete, elite mogul skier has to be built like
1: more than what you have to be built. Like is you have to have a certain mastery over your body because you have to relearn how to navigate, uh, objects, uh, You know, the the instinct when your body hits an object is to is to tense up and press against it. And in mogul skiing, you have to become supple and really absorb the force and kind of extend down the back. I mean, the the best mogul skiers uh, are are kind of poetic about it. Um, And it's one of those sports that requires both flexibility and incredible strength. So that again, you know, that that's kind of this paradoxical thing and, and you have to spend a lot of time working on, on both those uh, mechanisms and, you know, and then you have to have a process for fear um, because most people aren't completely fearless and it's a sport that is as in a lot of the winter Olympic sports, it's can be incredibly dangerous. It's extremely accident prone. It's asking your body to do things that your mind tells you are completely crazy.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it is kind of like one of those, um, I've done stories on fear at the plate. Like, why would you stick your head in front of a 90 mile an hour fastball? And that's what I think when I see you guys coming down the hill and, uh, I don't, do you have to have that almost swagger, like in my time, it was Alberto Tomba and Peekaboo. I mean, is there some element there that you must have that personality?
1: You know, I I think there are kind of two types of, of mobile skiers. There's that really, that swagger, that person that walks into the room and is just a, this commanding presence. Um, but there's also kind of uh, this person that's quiet and unassuming and has almost more of a, a, a spiritual surrender about them, kind of like surfers, um, because you're also out there in the elements and, and navigating danger and, and I think that those are the two archetypes um, and everyone in between um, has a hard time getting to to those top levels
0: A lot of great athletes say they never really get to see the surroundings like you know Chris Everett will tell you she went to a million Wimbledons, but she didn't really go down to the tower of london and I remember thinking the uh, in Sierra Nevada, where that might've been around your time, right. For uh, a world cup. Uh, and, uh, you, from the top, you could see Morocco, Mm -hmm. which most people don't think there'd be a place in Spain for skiing that you could see Morocco. But did you find when you're competing, you have to block out everything external.
1: In those moments when you're on deck and when you're on course, most certainly. Um, but you know, I think like when we traveled to ski, um, I really tried to use those opportunities to also experience the places that I was and ski other places. And, you know, it's, it's always very difficult for, for athletes, for serious athletes to have dimension in their life and have balance in their life, but it wasn't lost on me. And maybe because I was coming from such an underdog position, it wasn't lost on me that it, it, it always seemed like, well, I'm not supposed to be here. (laughs) Oh, but you were, this is crazy. Um, And so I tried to really uh, experience life as well and experience those places.
0: That's excellent. It uh, you have that horrific accident and you go to LA. Um, What did you, did you know anything about poker?
1: No, I always tell people that when when my boss told me I was going to be essentially a waitress at the game, I went home and I Googled like what kind of music poker players like to listen to and what do they eat? You know, cause I was trying to understand what this world was that I was walking into. And then I made this super embarrassing playlist with songs like the gambler on it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, (laughs) I was trying to be as prepared as I could for something you could never really prepare for. Um, And I walked in and, and there were all these, you know, not only A-list actors like Ben Affleck and Leonardo DiCaprio, but the head of one of, you know, one of the biggest investment banks and a politician who everyone knows this person's name and, um, someone who had just, uh, taken their tech company public. And, and, you know, it was just this incredible environment in which these people that, you see on CNBC or you see it on the Oscar during the Oscars or from all different walks of life that were essentially at the top of their game, all congregating in this room in which they felt very comfortable speaking freely. And it was thrilling for, you know, I was. Yeah. all
0: bold face names. Sitting yeah. At one table did. Uh, what kind of music do they like?
1: <laughs> you know, I, I think that their taste is varied, but I think at a poker table, they kind of liked my playlist,
0: which included
1: like, you know, the gambler and night moves and all these like very cliche.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. So you did keep that.
1: And then I upgraded it to like Frank Sinatra, you know? Yes. Yeah. Is it something
0: where, I mean, I'm sure it varies uh, among the men, but, or, and the women, but is it uh, where they can't really focus on the music or the food or the alcohol, or it all combines to make a better experience for them?
1: It all combines to make a better experience for them. Um. You know what? What I'm what I was trying to uh, create in those rooms was, first of all, the fantasy. You know, to walk in and and so these people could feel like they were at, you know, they were James Bond for a night. Um, but also the flow state, um, where you could feel like you could play forever, and there's no frustration. And so when you're trying to achieve the flow state in that context, you really think about the five senses.
0: Wow, that now see that's interesting. Now the food um, you said you started with a cheese plate, but what did you find actually (laughs) worked better than that?
1: What I found was that figuring out every person's favorite thing in the world, their favorite type of water—yes, there's that's a thing in Hollywood. Um, Their favorite (laughs) uh, cocktail, if they're drinking alcohol, their favorite five things for dinner, and not having to. Ask people, but to just provide it for them, to so they feel taken care of and important and sing and singled out. I felt I found that that was the formula. You know, the more you can do to take care of a person, the more you can do to make them feel special and important. Um, uh, you know, the the better the outcome. You
0: said in your book that poker was a Trojan horse. What did you mean by that?
1: I meant that. there's this poker game that everybody wanted to play in. There were nine seats and it was this incredible way to infiltrate any subset of society. So at one point I became very interested in the art world. And so I had a game that, and I invited famous artists and art dealers and uh, museum curators. Um, If I was interested in finance, I could have this this, you know, once there was the name, once there was the brand, once people knew who I was and what I provided, I could put together these events, these games for different people. And you would be amazed at how incredible the conversation is over the eight hours that they're playing poker and they feel relaxed and you get to just learn about everything, you know, in in a really like firsthand way.
0: Yeah. Did you feel, I always say that Sports is the ultimate passport because you can talk to a cab driver or a king. And you must have felt that, that every aspect of society was here. And would they engage you in conversation or you were just the best listener in the
1: history of the world? I preferred to be the the best listener in the history of the world. Um, I was just soaking it up. And, uh, you know, like sometimes they would involve me in their conversations, but my position was neutrality. And they would always want me to choose a side. And so, um, you know, listen, I just love it was it was incredibly thrilling to be able to observe and listen. I was taking notes all the time. Um, I was very young and and just learning so much. But you're such your whole family are high achievers.
0: You're a high achiever. How long did it take from I'm the waitress to creating a spreadsheet? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, a couple months, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> maybe but that's nuts. I mean, most people just three thousand dollars is pretty good night, and this is what I do. like w- what do you think was in you that you
1: said I gotta get
0: more squeeze the lemon here,
1: yeah, um I just found it incredibly compelling, and I think this comes from a sports from your sports background that you never enter into an opportunity uh, or something that's compelling and just take it. Take it for what it is at first blush, like there's always this I need to work hard and achieve more and level up and um and and really maximize this opportunity
0: you know I've been talking about you um I don't know if your ears fell off, but especially <laughs> <laughs> since I knew we were going to spend some time, and most of my guy friends they d- they don't get and they didn't get it from the movie. Most people don't think it's illegal to hold a poker game.
1: Right. There are a couple of things. First of all, when I had my attorneys look at the federal statutes, they said um, there are things you can do to kind of stay out of the muck. But even if even if there is the muck, it's a misdemeanor. It's in the same category as trespassing. But
0: why is it illegal to hold a poker game?
1: So it's not illegal to hold a poker game. It's illegal to profit from holding a poker game. And up until the point that I was indicted, nobody included poker in this ga- in this specific gambling charge because of the language. The language said games of chance. And you can make a very strong and very compelling argument uh, that poker is a game of skill. And so that was always the caveat that kept poker out of this particular gambling charge that I was indicted on, which is, you know, uh, running an illegal gambling business.
0: People are allowed to hold poker games, but the people running the game aren't supposed to make any money. That's right. Really?
1: Yeah. And now there's, you know, online poker is, is more and more legal. And, um, but you know, that, that, I guess that was the rules and that was the law and, and, uh, here we are. <laughs> but so this jackpot happened. I
0: mean, obviously it went along for a while and people knew about it, but didn't talk about it. And then what what were the exact circumstances that all of a sudden an FBI breaks into your apartment?
1: So I ran these games for about eight years. Um, but you know, in New York City and and Miami and 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 uh and Los Angeles. And uh towards the for about seven and a half years, I did it legally, and in the last year, year, half a year, I started taking a rake, which means taking a percentage of each pot. And the games had gotten so immense by that time, I mean, you know, I had a game that someone lose, lost a hundred million dollars. And oh wait, stop there.
0: <laughs> <laughs> stop there. I had a game. I couldn't have heard you correctly.
1: Yes, you did. <laughs> Unfortunately, Leslie. <laughs> yeah.
0: Somebody of, of not his name, but of a Bezos wealth had a 100 million to lose or didn't have it to lose. Well,
1: th- This person is definitely a billionaire, um, but I think. A hundred million dollar loss at a poker game. I don't care how much money you have. I think it suggests pretty, pretty extreme dysfunction.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Give me the circumstances. So he loses, he loses. And then what? It's a point of pride
1: yeah absolutely pride uh addiction perhaps um uh, you know like a, I think uh becoming dysregulated yeah, and you know the and then the game changed and it became a billionaire's game that still goes on today in which people sit around and lose numbers like this um and you know i don't maybe they can afford it. Maybe they can't. I I still think it's just, it's so extreme um, that it's, that's kind of troublesome. Is
0: uh, when the gentleman was losing the money and you're basically the banker, right? At that point.
1: Yeah. I had to cut them off uh, well before a hundred million, you know, in terms of the number that I was going to guarantee. So um, he had posted a number, meaning he had paid Upfront, because he was a new player, a number that I'd asked for, and uh, I was willing to cover a little bit more than that. And then after that number, I said to everyone in the game, "If you guys continue playing, if you continue honoring his losses, this is yours to collect and yours to guarantee." Because you know, I was making good money, but I wasn't, nor would I take a hundred million dollar risk. Did you get stiffed
0: sometimes? For a got yeah. whacked a couple times?
1: Yeah, I did for sure um the biggest stiff i got was a quarter of a million um but it, it didn't happen that often uh and you know it was i'd like to think it was because i was good at my job but i also know that it was because uh the the social consequences the business consequences for stiffing this game were dire uh these were people that were doing business together they uh needed to respect each other they, they were peers and so, if they would have stiffed this game, it, it was like social suicide.
0: What do you think was happening to you as a person during all this?
1: You know, it it really started out with uh, this this f- sort of finally understanding what I was good at, where where my skill set really really was, and that was as an entrepreneur. Um, I found out through these games that I could think fast on my feet, I could problem solve, um, and so. For a, a large part of the time I was running the games, um, I think it, I think that it. W- I came from a place of wanting to do the right thing, but wanting to build a, a really cool business and make some money. Um, and then something changed, something shifted in me, and I started to become more about you know the, the greed and the money, and that became priority. And I sort of uh, reshifted my core values and things started to really fall apart. And I started to really lose myself um, and and start making bad decisions and, you know, even start drinking more and and really go down a very dangerous, dark path. Um,
0: Yeah, you don't become an Olympic hopeful by taking drugs usually or drinking. And were you saying to yourself, it's okay, because look at all the money I'm making?
1: Yeah, I, well, I I think the justification is work hard, play hard. And that's what everyone did in that world that I was in. You know, I wasn't, I was surrounding myself with some, a, a certain level of degeneracy, even if they, even if some of these people were the most successful people in the world, it was still ju- degeneracy. It was late nights. It was a career choice that I couldn't be honest with with certain people, and that's always a dead giveaway. you do,
0: know do you think you started to lose it started to lose control, like when Russians, people you didn't really know, started coming in, or where did it start to fall apart?
1: I think it definitely started to fall apart in New York. and um, I just had so I went to New York with something to prove and And just such an extreme fire, um, that it was like ambition and success at any cost. You know, I'd been screwed over in l a by somebody that I trusted. I'd lost the game, and this game represented more than just a poker game to me. It was this sort of I felt that I had arrived in a way in a and you know, growing up with a brother who's number one in the world at eighteen. Um, in in mogul skiing, then goes on to play in the NFL, then goes on to be a CEO of a tech company, and then another brother who is Harvard educated cardiothoracic surgeon at Massachusetts General. I wanted I wanted to 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 assert my place. I wanted to seat at this this metaphorical table. And through this business that I had created and the money that I was making, i I, I guess I finally felt that. And so when it was taken from me, I had a lot of fear and, and just a lot of like blind fury to, to recreate it. And so, um, you know, I think that that was the start of it and, and New York was crazier and the games were bigger and there was more competition and it was more savage and it was more dangerous and all of these things should have said to me, should have signaled I should have paid attention to the signal of like, okay, listen, you've made your money. You've made your point. Now let's parlay this into something that's actually, you can tell your boyfriend's parents what you do for a living, or you can um, imagine doing this and starting a family and have this sustainable business model because at at, at its current state, it was not any of those things.
0: You know, how did you handle it? Um, I have the privilege. I'm the first woman inducted into the pro football hall of fame. that about you? But, well, but what it means is that I have covered the NFL all male for 40 years and I've had to dealt as you did. I, I want to hear your experiences like um, the constant uh, and maybe it wasn't all harassment, but just the constant attention that can be wearing. Sometimes it can be fun, but it's constant. How, right. how did you handle it?
1: Well, it's it, it's it's not pleasant. You know, it gets to a play, and and I know that you know that, and I feel like you and I could just have great conversations. Um, you know, what I found is that when I was just the you know when I was the cocktail waitress for the game, i got on I got hit on a lot and sort of in disrespectful ways. When I became the bank, which means I'm extending credit and collecting your money, I became infinitely less popular. <laughs> There's nothing like respect. <laughs> it was like it went from like, I want to buy you like a Birkin bag and this to like, I I'm not paying that 10000 dollars that I owe. And I'm like, oh, so like the Birkin bag's off the table? Like, why don't you just <laughs> you know,
0: you know? Yeah, you had, well you're funny too.
1: But that's um,
0: I mean, that has to be an aspect of uh you want that respect. And um, I'm sure by the time you left it, uh tell tell the story of how if it's correct, the Russian mobster put a gun to your head.
1: That was Italian. He was Italian. Um, so, you know, the, there's, there's two different, I guess, mob contingencies here. There were a a couple guys playing in the, in the big game who, uh, were had alleged ties to the Russian mob. And, and to be honest, it was shocking because these were people who were sophisticated and, you know, could mesh well at a table of, people who ran fortune 500 companies and um you know they they had ties to the to the russian mob and cuz i think the culture is a bit different now the italian uh piece of it was different so these people came to me and said we if you want to continue operating your games you need to give us a piece and you know we can collect for you and basically wanted me to go into business with them and and gave me a subtle ultimatum um, that at by this point in my career, I thought I could sort of outwit anyone. And I was really mistaken,
0: but that's a shakedown, right? Basically. Shakedown,
1: yeah. And, and I politely declined their offer. I tried to explain to them why it wouldn't work. They send someone to my house. This, this person put a gun in my mouth, which is just unspeakably terrifying. Um, and beat me up like pretty badly and took all the contents of what was in my safe, including like my grandmother's jewelry and even some photographs and essentially said, this isn't an option. Like this is, you know, and and we know where your parents live. I mean, it it was a nightmare. And then I, and they said, if you tell anyone, we're going to find your family. So I couldn't, I didn't call law enforcement. I didn't tell my family. I didn't tell my good friends. I just tried to deal with it alone. And I, I had to stay in my apartment because my face looked like I had just been beaten up. Um, and you know, I, three weeks went by, I didn't hear from them, which was terrifying, but also, uh, I had no idea what I was going to say. I mean, for the first time in my life, I really did not know what my options were, how to handle this. And so, uh, I got lucky. Um, the third week I got the New York times and on the cover, it said 125 were arrested the biggest mob related takedown in New York city history. And I never heard from them again.
0: You just have to let me absorb that for a second.
1: Uh, when someone puts a
0: gun in your mouth, are there a thousand thoughts colliding or you just reduce it all to what?
1: Well, I just remember that my teeth started chattering um, and I was so terrified that that, that was gonna cause the gun to go off so I was just trying to um like calm my body um and it seemed to take forever and then and then when when I kind of like got that in check then i then you then I just went to like survival what what can I offer here that um will give them upside to leave you know and then I was like I have a ton of money in my safe I have a ton of cash in my safe and let me offer that, you know? So it's just survival, you know, it's, it's survival in that moment.
0: It's not often that (laughs) I'm speechless, but I am, I am in, was it portrayed pretty accurately in the movie?
1: Yeah. Aaron did a good job of, and he wanted to do Aaron Sorkin, the writer. Um, We bow. Yes, we bow for sure. Uh, When we went over this part, he said, I'm sorry, it, this, this might be painful, but I want to get this scene right. And I don't want it to be this gratuitous movie violence scene. I want it to be a, as accurate as possible. And so I walked him through it many, many times. And when I saw that scene play out uh, in the movie, it was eerily accurate. Mm-hmm. Did uh,
0: what characteristics did. Ms. Chastain, who how fabulous is she, right? Okay. What, what, oh, my God, she is. What did you want her to get right? And what did she get right?
1: I wrote the book and then I tried to convince people to write, specifically Aaron, to write the movie because I didn't see any other way out of my circumstance that I was in, which was essentially I was 35 years old, millions of dollars in debt, a convicted felon, a social pariah, you know, the list goes on and on. And so I really felt that the story was unique enough that it could perhaps carry me into a different place. Uh, and you know, I I've, I've loved stories since I was a little kid. And so, and what I really wanted, so I wanted that for myself, what I wanted, um, as a woman is I wanted there to be movies and stories told out there that allows us to be deeply flawed and human, uh, and, and doesn't focus on, oh, But she's but then she had a baby and got married and lived happily ever after. Or oh, and then she had this boyfriend. You know, I wanted this story to be told in the way that it happened, which is I wanted to make something of myself. I wanted a big life. I made some bad choices. Still uh I'm I'm still a person that deserves a second chance, which I think almost everybody is. And I wanted that that story to be told that way, and I thought Jessica played it with an, a beautiful amount of vulnerability and strength. She really a
0: couple things. She could have played you as a party girl, but she didn't. Like that, that at you know a lot of levels, it gets taken out of your hands. But she didn't. She she seems to have been very much who you are.
1: Yes, and I think that that's important because as women, we get stereotyped into these very one-dimensional archetypes and we are layered we are complex and so I thought that Jessica played it beautifully I thought she'd have for sure should have been nominated for an Oscar but you know there's that's a political world in Hollywood
0: (laughs) (laughs) who was more intense the people playing poker or Aaron Sorkin
1: (laughs) (laughs) Aaron Sorkin could have had a seat at that game. That's for sure. (laughs) Yeah. They're, you know, these are, these are intense people. Um, and particularly when there's a lot of money on the table, uh, but Aaron was intense in a whole different way. And, um, you know, he's an artist. So that, that was just thrilling to be able to witness his process and to be a, at all part of it uh it was it was an abs- like such a huge honor and and so exciting and such an experience
0: and to hear nobody deals with the english language better than aaron sorkin i mean some meet that standard but very few surpass it and wasn't it wonderful to hear his words coming out in the characters
1: Yes and no, because now everyone expects me to be as funny and smart as the dialogue that Aaron writes. <laughs> That's
0: true. <laughs> there is a price
1: to pay. Well, there you is seem a like, price
0: to pay. You seem like you have a, a handle on it. Did um, did the movie uh, set you back in any way, um, observing it all put together like that on a screen? Or did you find it was liberating?
1: So liberating. Um, no, but I had done... A lot of indirect therapy, a lot of accidental therapy, because when you hire an attorney like Jim Walden, who's thorough and who really wants to do best by you, he—I had to spill every detail of my life. Um, for you know, I was someone who also always harbored secrets and and had all these things, and for you know, for the rest of my life, Jim Walden will be the only person that knows every single thing about what I know and who I who I know it about and everything, and so. Going over that story in, in the detail, and then spending the next eight months with Aaron uh, detailing that. You know, by the time I got to the movie, mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I had probably done like a thousand hours of like talk therapy indirectly. Um, and you know, I I sat in that movie theater mm-hmm. in Toronto with two thousand people, and I hadn't I hadn't seen the movie. I decided to see it for the first time at the premiere, and it was you know both. Uh, terrifying and exciting. But I watched that movie, and, and everyone in the audience was with me. You know, like it, they were laughing at the funny parts and crying at the sad parts and cheering at the parts that I felt like cheering at. And it was this really cathartic experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would have to say um, you're rootable. Like I found myself watching the movie. I think most people were rooting for you when they, just because of what you said, that you were willing to say, Here I am here are the great things. Here are the mistakes here where I was excited. Here's where I was defeated. Did, um, did you feel like it was a fair sentence it, it, uh, to me, it seems extreme. I don't know that world, but did you feel like probation and community was fair?
1: I knew the law. I broke it. And that's where I have to live. So I feel, um, extremely relieved that I didn't have to go to jail. Uh, being a convicted felon for the rest of my life, not being able to vote, um, having a hard time every time you know I I I want to buy a house or lease an apartment or go to Canada. These are all inconveniences, but I I focus on you know look at look at where I am now. Look at the people that showed up for me. Um, you know I I I could have stayed down forever. And there were incredible people that supported me and I got lucky in a few spots and I, I worked hard and, and now I, I have a life that I, you know, I pinched myself.
0: It's given you more perspective than many people have. Plus it takes you all over the world. It, um, tell me about your husband. Did, did I don't know his name or did he know who you were? How how did that happen?
1: No, <laughs> um, no, <laughs> we met, uh, before the movie came out about six months before the movie came out. And um, we just met and I didn't, you know, I said, oh, I wrote this book and they're making a movie about it. And I think he thought, I know he thought it was going to be like some indie movie that no one would see, you know? And so he went to go see a movie with his mom and the, the trailer for my movie was playing. And he called me and he said, I think I just saw... <laughs> A trailer for the movie that's going to be about your life. That's crazy. <laughs> the trailer came out, you know, and he was like, well, you didn't tell me. I was like, I did tell you.
0: <laughs> Is his field very far away from poker games? and?
1: Yeah, he's a neuroscientist.
0: <laughs> <laughs> really? He saw the trailer come on at the movie theater? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Girl, you got to lead with that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's more fun that way, though, you know.
0: It is. No, it is. It's. Um, I'm interested. You. You have a podcast. Terrific podcast runs on Stitcher. Torched. Uh, why did you pick? What was inside you that you wanted to know about Olympic cheaters?
1: <laughs> well, I don't know if it's necessarily Olympic cheaters. Yeah. So it's Olympic scandals and controversies. I guess I. I'm endlessly fascinated by the human condition, and then. The human condition at the penultimate of, of high stakes and ambition, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's not hard to guess why that interests me. From my own experience, um, I know that there's so much more to the story.
0: And that's what everything is, is storytelling, like you said. Everything, you know, since the Bible, it's all right. stories. Give me a good story. Right. But uh, I was going to tell you, CBS sent me to the fall of the Berlin Wall, right? One of the great stories of the century. Oh, tells- right. It was in 1989. And um, my slice of it, of course, it was Dan Rather and everybody else. But my slice of it was how sports would change in East Germany once the reunification happened. So uh, I, I just remember going through Checkpoint Charlie. We were going to talk to Katerina Witt, who, as you know, was the beautiful face of socialism. And she never complained, right, because she could travel to the West. But it was like going from color to black and white and all those athletes, I mean, the female swimmers had beards. Give me a break. I mean, it was so clearly they were doped. And you talk to our American athletes who swam against those women, and they had no chance. So it it, it really, um, I think cheating at the Olympic level, we just saw the judging. We saw whether or not the young Russian woman, maybe unbeknownst to her. So i I do think, I mean, is it? Some level of greed at the top of the IOC, or um, why do we see this happening?
1: Well, I think it depends on, on the specific circumstance. I think in, uh, in Russia, um, I think it comes from all the way at the top. I think it comes right. from the government, right? For um, national pride. For national pride. Sometimes it's personal. Um, we talk about this gentleman that hotwired his sword in a fencing contest. Uh, because he wanted the final accolade, you know, to to complete his his metal collection. So that's most certainly greed. Um, You know, uh, Greg Louganis. Didn't cheat, but uh, chose to not tell anybody, including the doctor who stitched his head uh, that he was HIV positive. It's not hard to understand why he wouldn't want to disclose that in, in the 80s in this country. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's fascinating to look at the causes and conditions, the backstory um, who, who is this human being? What, what were their motivations? Um, and to look at it without trying to judge everyone, but just, you know, in a, like curiosity. Okay. Uh, that's what you, because I, now
0: I'd have a, a hard time with that. I, what I love about sports is that it is the great meritocracy. You know, it doesn't matter how much money your father had or where your mother went to college, right? I mean, you hit the jumper, you sink the putt. So um, I think cheating is, I mean, I was outraged at what the Houston Astros did, not just because I'm a born, bred and bled Red Sox fan, but, <laughs> <laughs> but I I don't, um, yeah, cheating cheating offends me in sports rather than it doesn't spark. I get the story of it, which is what appeals to you, but as an athlete, aren't you offended by it?
1: Yes, most certainly. Uh, and you know, I, it's not, I don't think that people shouldn't have consequences. Um, but I think it's interesting as an observer of the human condition to understand the why.
0: Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. Even, even that young Russian skater. There's such pressure put on them, as you were saying before in Russia, that uh, that you can be young and malleable and maybe think it's wrong, but uh, in the face of the pressure, you don't challenge it. So you're right. It, it the What did you call it before? It was really great. The conditions and the consequences.
1: The causes and conditions, for sure. But, you know, on Torch, we don't just talk about uh, cheaters. We also go into what happens in these host cities that host the olympics and and the untold story of of the havoc that it creates and the you know sort of like even in um and sometimes the violence that ensues from it and you know all these stories that were not so uh, that were not told like i before i did this podcast i would have thought every city wanted to host the olympics was vying to host the olympics and then you look at the toll that it takes uh we look at mental health issues um we look at um, stories about you know uh rule fifty and and what what it means to protest at the olympics and and you know what what people's stances on that, so it's you know we're we're casting a wider net. I think if I had to do thirty six episodes on cheaters i would
0: <laughs> i would be burned out I guess one final question do you ever think you know um if My Olympic dreams had just worked out. I this I would not have experienced this. Or do you think the ride was worth the fall?
1: I think that the exercise of trying to look at what my life would be like if I didn't make all the bad choices that I made isn't one that I necessarily uh, find to be the the thing that helps me sleep the most at night. You know, I, I have I have these moments. I just had a baby eight weeks ago.
0: Congratulations.
1: And you know, like when my daughter was born, I had this moment of like, I should, I should have, um, chosen a more conventional path. I, I, I should have been a role model, but then it passes. And I'm, this was the life that I chose. And I have had, I, I've had some invaluable lessons. Um, when you burn your life to the ground as badly as I did, then you pick back up and you're able to to keep going and to and to recover from it, it instills in you a kind of belief in yourself that's unshakable. And I wouldn't trade that for anything.
0: Yeah, I love that. Also, you know, you you weren't a conventional person, no matter what had happened here. I mean, clearly, people don't ski moguls. if They're conventional people.
1: I mean, yeah, <laughs> mogul skiing is so crazy.
0: <laughs> it's so crazy, and the knees bouncing like that the whole time.
1: I don't Especially know, when no. you're when you have eleven vertebrae fused in your spine and two metal rods like I do. Like that was just you know a, a very interesting sport to choose, but
0: but that's what we did. <laughs> no, see, you're not conventional. Um, I want to thank you so much, Molly. I hope this is our first of many because you're just fascinating.
1: I I am like I said in the beginning. I'm so honored to be. On your show, I am a huge fan of yours. You've had such a prolific career. Um, and, and so the pleasure is all mine.
0: And that was my conversation with Molly Bloom. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today on Stitcher, Pandora, or wherever you stream your podcast to enjoy new episodes every week. In Conversation with Leslie Visser is part of the Sirius XM podcast network and is available on the SXM app included with most subscriptions. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer, sound design by Robert Moore, and special thanks to Sirius XM Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. Talk to you next week. Sirius XM Podcasts.